0: This is Unerased, a series about the hidden history of conversion therapy in America. I'm Chad Abumrad. According to a survey uh, by the Williams Institute at UCLA, nearly 700,000 people have, these are currently living human beings, have gone through some version of conversion therapy. That's equivalent to the city of Boston, the entire city of Boston. Picture that in your mind. This series is going to tell some of those stories from all different angles. We're releasing it in conjunction with the movie Boy Erased from Focus Features, uh, which was based on a memoir by Garrett Conley. Now, Garrett, Garrett is a gay man. And 14 years ago, he spent two weeks in one of these programs that tried to turn him straight.
1: So, um, we'll sign you in. If you sign your name real quick, and then I'll do all the other stuff.
0: Didn't go well. And a few months ago, uh, we came to the Smithsonian, of all places, Nobody will us. And, uh, to look back on that time. Because when Garrett left that program, literally ran out screaming for his life. He smuggled out a bit of contraband. Wow. An archivist led us into this very dramatic uh, room. Do we, do, should we sit here? Or? Yeah, I was thinking I just put up the table where there's light. That's great. This is this perfect. A lot of mahogany, velvet curtains. They sat us at a table. Okay. That was right under a spotlight. Feels so formal. <laughs> and then placed a giant binder on the table.
2: Um, so do need to wear gloves Only if
0: there's a, a loose photograph,
2: um, which I don't think there is. So it's all, oh, it's all As, there. I think Franklin it's, said was the way you handed it over. Is that, does it feel weird? Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't know. I, it's a welcome, Garrett, that's freaking me out. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, will, you, will you read yeah. it, please? It says, welcome, Garrett, with an exclamation point. Giant letters right on the front of the binder. Then has a quote from Psalm 32, 5 and 6. I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess them to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. We stood there for a second, looking
0: down at the Welcome Garrett message, and because I'm slow, it took me a second to realize that his name wasn't stuck to the binder that day by the Smithsonian... It was
2: attached 14 years earlier. It's creepy because, because it's like it's like welcoming for me from the past. Yeah, yes. I suddenly like, got I kind of got chills just now. You see, trying, what I'm, like, I'm, yeah. I'm actually being pretty triggered right now. I can totally <laughs> I
0: can t- I'm totally getting that. Yeah, I mean it's weird. It's such a different world that you're looking back on. To back up for a second,
2: where'd you grow up? I grew up in Arkansas in the Mississippi Delta, a really small town of a hundred people called Milligan Ridge. A hundred people? Only a hundred people. What does a town of a hundred people look like? It looks like one church and a small gas station and a cotton gin, and that was about it. Flat fields for miles. As a 10 year old, let's say, what are you doing? What are you doing? (laughs) like well, how do you sp- how are you spending your time <laughs> I would go outside for long periods of time and look for marbles because there would be marbles in the fields I don't really know why there were so many old marbles and then I you know when I was younger people would always say oh there are old arrowheads out back and so I would try to search for those And the cotton gin, uh, your dad ran that? Yeah.
0: And did you ever work at the cotton gin?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I mowed at the cotton gin. I mowed all the lawns, like, during the summer. And then I was in charge of sometimes helping my dad repair things, but I think that was mostly just for show.
0: (laughs) Now, Garrett's dad, uh, who plays a big role in this story, the first thing to know about him is that he is
2: deeply religious. There was almost never a point when I didn't see him holding a Bible near a Bible, like, his office is full of Bibles. In fact... It's a miracle he saved me. It's a miracle he saved me to the uttermost.
0: Uh, after the cotton gin closed, and then after a stint running a Ford dealership, he became a preacher. Amen? We weren't able to talk to his dad, but you can find his sermons online.
1: I'm telling you right now that sin <laughs> is present in all our lives. And don't think you're going to get away with it. W- Was your dad,
0: like, was he a heaven and hell, fire and brimstone kind of Christian? Or was he a different kind of Christian?
2: Dad was definitely a fire and brimstone.
1: Listen, folks, one day there's coming Jesus and he's going to change all this. He's going to make it all right. He's going to make us a new place. He's going to carry us away and put us in there.
2: Dad really believed we were in the end times. He still does, I think. But Garrett says, even though he could be a little fiery as a preacher, as a dad... I have so many great memories of him acting like a complete fool. In a great way. Um, Tell me, uh, make a list for me. I mean, he would, like when my friends would stay over, he would do crazy things like he would try to scare us. And he he created this... uh, this uh, monster called the wolverang which is part wolf part orangutan which if you think about that it's terrifying like yeah. <laughs> like it would like jump from tree to tree but like have a wolf's fangs. Wow. And he was like if you go outside it's gonna eat you which sounds terrifying but was actually really fun.
0: He says there were uh times when his dad would cover his face with shaving cream and chase him and his friends around the house. Uh took the family to Disneyland pretty much every year. And, Garrett says, and this is important to understand, they also connected about their faith. There were Bible studies in the morning. They would pray together at night. I'm wondering, were you a believer?
2: Yeah, I was definitely a believer. I mean, there are still moments that I can't explain out of my religious experience that um, bother me.
0: He writes about one such experience he had when he was 12. He was lying in bed at night, thinking about a sermon he'd heard
2: earlier in the day. I can read from it. Yeah, now. please. Sure. That night, within the empty echo chamber of my mind, a place usually reserved for the petty considerations of the day, I asked, am I loved? The answer came in the form of a physical burning that traveled through my whole body, sent my limbs trembling. In that instant, I loved the feel of the sheets on my back. I loved the way the bedroom carpet felt cool beneath my toes when I stood up. I loved every face I had ever seen, every blemish and worry line. I covered my face and my hands and wept for joy. Wow. i really actually. Really? Because I never go back, I never read that section <laughs> for a reason. Really? Chad's very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, she she found this one. Oh. She being Shima Oliai who did the interview with me. He gets um, It's okay. It's okay. Wait, wait, why do you say that, though? Why? I never read it because it's so real to me. Like, it still seems real to me that that experience happened. And um, I guess it's the part of Christianity that I still love.
0: Okay, so here's what happened that uh, would eventually cause... Garrett to write a memoir that would eventually cause Joel Egerton to write, make a movie about that memoir that would eventually cause us to visit that weird contraband book at the Smithsonian. And you see this in the film.
2: Yo, I got you. Oh, okay. oh, sorry. Sorry. I got that. Uh, thank you so much. Which uh,
0: Garrett goes off to college, Lions College, Arkansas.
2: Which room are you in? I'm in uh, 317.
0: Studies literature the world opens up to him. At this point he is very in the closet. He's had thoughts about men but pushed them away. He's only ever had girlfriends. But one night at college, he's hanging out with a guy, and he confesses that he's had these thoughts. What happens next is that Garrett is sexually assaulted by that male student, who then, for complicated reasons, ends up telling Garrett's parents that he's gay. Garrett's mom ends up coming to get him, taking him
2: home where he has to face his dad. So my dad took me in his bedroom. He closed the door and he said, I want to know, are you gay? Are you homosexual? And at first I said, no, not at all. Because I just, I wasn't going to come out then. But my dad is someone I've never really, aside from having feelings, I'd never directly lied to my dad. And he said to me, like, do you swear to God that you're not gay. And I was like, I can't, I'm gay. Mm. Because you didn't want to. So strange that I just remembered that. (laughs) You are getting it out of me. (laughs) Because you didn't want to lie in front of God. Yeah. That was the scarier thing. And then like doing that in front of my father felt like such a betrayal to say, to lie on that level felt like a, a huge betrayal not only toward God but to my dad and um, he said well there's no other way you have to I've heard of these places I'm going to contact these pastors that night his dad called a pastor from Bellevue Baptist Church and it's a big mega church
0: very well respected in the community and the pastor ends up recommending that Garrett go to a place called love in action <music> Where things get pretty dramatic. I'm Jad Abumrad, Unerased. We'll continue in a moment. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Unerased, episode one. So a little context is in order. Garrett Conley ends up getting outed to his parents, and they send him to a place called Love and Action.
3: What is that? This, if you really want to be well, this is the Cadillac of ex-gay programs.
0: This is in Memphis?
3: Memphis. Memphis.
0: That's Peterson Toscano. He is a playwright, Bible scholar. He did two stints at Love and Action about 10 years before Garrett, and has spent about 17 years in ex-gay ministries all over the world. He's sort of
3: the wise elder of ex-gay survivors. Well, I mean, there's a whole history, right? This movement is a big river that has lots of twists and turns. The whole thing really began uh, in
0: 1974 in San Francisco with a guy named Frank Worthen. Well, tonight
1: I wanted to give you my testimony first uh, and then uh, go into some steps of how people escape, how do they get out from homosexuality.
0: This is him speaking to a group in
1: Singapore. I thought I would start
0: first with my life. As Worthen tells it, uh, he was living in San Francisco, openly gay.
1: Just one of the people in the bars looking for somebody. I had relationships, but they came and went.
0: He says as he lived the, quote, lifestyle, he couldn't make any connections. He got more and more depressed.
1: Uh, By the time I was 40, it was pretty much over for me. Totally empty, miserable on the inside, and didn't know what to do. And
0: he says he began to contemplate suicide. He would drive uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge, back and forth to work.
1: And each day I used to wonder, you know, what day is it going to be that I stop on the bridge, leave the car there, and jump?
0: And he says at... His lowest point, at the age of 44, God spoke to him and told him essentially to start a church, which he did, devoted to people like
1: him. So um, we developed a program and a process uh, for people to leave the homosexual lifestyle.
0: The program and the process, which we'll get into more later in the series, was sort of an amalgam of talk therapy, 12-step pseudoscience, and a whole lot of scripture. Uh Worthen started that program in California in nineteen seventy three and then about twenty years later opened a branch in Memphis. And Peterson says early on, a lot of the people who attended Love in Action did it by choice. Exactly. Yeah. For him? AIDS hit.
1: Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study
2: which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic. An
3: AIDS hit when I was 17.
2: A rare form of cancer.
3: And it was called gay cancer. Because it's a
2: gay cancer.
3: It was something that only homosexuals were getting.
2: AIDS is the judgment of God. And that's the title of the sermon tonight,
1: AIDS, the judgment of God. And
3: that's how it was talked about by the ministers.
1: The Lord shall might be with a consumption, and with a fever, and with an inflammation. Don't tell me that God won't send birth. pestilence as a punishment. Don't tell me that the fact that our country today is
3: filled with STDs isn't the judgment of God today, because it is. And that was terrifying. In any case,
0: Love and Action, this place that both Peterson and Garrett ended up at, uh, pitched itself as the solution to their struggles. Peterson remembers driving up to the Love and Action campus in Memphis.
3: There was this pretty little house uh, in uh, in the middle of a, a horse farm that they rented this house. So you go down this dirt road to this cute little house with flowers hanging from the front of the porch. And people are incredibly friendly. Oh, welcome. You know, you're so brave to come. we really, you know, excited to see you. And then... They say, okay, well, you know, first day, one of the participants who's in a higher phase of the program will um, just go through your bags and make sure that
2: you don't have anything that's inappropriate.
1: Empty your pockets.
2: My books were forbidden, like any books that I took with me. They ripped my short story out. Of my notebook. Do
0: you have any numbers or photos we should be concerned about?
2: Garrett says they went through his wallet. My phone.
0: We'll check at Daily and call any number at random, so you best be straight with us on that. And you see There's this depicted in the there. film. Uh, Garrett says they even made him sign a confidentiality agreement saying he'll never reveal what happens right. behind
2: these walls. And then we were handed this giant handbook. Which said, on the cover, welcome Garrett. And we were told by the staff, you need to memorize everything in it. Like 275 rules. What were some of the rules? Well, every single page. So, shirts are to be worn at all times, including sleeping. The kind of clothes we wore. No hugging or physical touch between clients. The way we sat. A brief, affirmative hand on a shoulder is allowed. Crossed
3: our legs. How we looked at our nails.
0: Peter says they were told, when you're looking at your nails, don't hold your hand away from your body and turn your palm out. That's how gay men do it. Instead, uh,
3: turn your palm towards you and then bend your fingers. So like, always make sure that you've got your, your hands almost like in a little claw that you're looking at.
0: Peterson says each gay person would be appointed a straight mentor to help them be less gay. And you see a bit of this in Boy Erased. The film. These burly straight guys who get up in front of the class. Fingers
2: forward, not
1: back. It's just the way it is.
0: Teaching a bunch of young gay men how to stand, how to walk.
1: Think of the shapes you're making and ask yourself. Is this a manly shape I'm making, or is it a girly or feminine shape?
3: You know, they were trying to butch us up.
0: Dear Heavenly Father, today I ask your forgiveness for my sins. But the biggest part of the daily ritual, according to both Garrett and Peterson, was a kind of talk therapy. We lived together under the cover of being roommates. But in reality, the whole time I was committing the sin of sodomy, Participants were encouraged to confess their most shameful homosexual experiences in
2: graphic detail. That I was seduced into a life of sin by all sorts of sinful people. And I knew in my heart that I had forsaken Jesus for I remember just thinking, like, it's not fair because these people had sexual experiences and now they get to say that they're not going to anymore, but I didn't get that.
0: Garrett says that for the first two weeks, he moved through the nonstop schedule of the program in a a state of struggle. He felt shame for the feelings that got him there. But I wanted that shame, you know? Uh, interesting but he also felt jealous of the people who'd had a chance to act on those shameful urges. How
1: are you thinking in your head? Are you arguing back and forth? I'm asking, like, did you have, what was your own internal, how were you processing?
2: I knew that I didn't like what was happening, but... It was like, okay, we sometimes get so angry that we think about murdering someone or we want to hit somebody over the head with a vase, but you don't do it, right? You resist the compulsion to pick up the vase. Just as you have rules to ensure that society does not devolve into fist fights, you have rules to determine ways to keep the family safe.
1: You were trying to keep the family safe,
2: the idea of family, if this is what God wanted, and it says so in the Bible over and over again, then just as like we 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 make sure that we have a no murder law, we decide to have a no homosexuality law in our minds. Why would I think it was any different, you know like if, if the Bible and Christianity, especially fundamentalist Christianity, is about sacrifice, if it's about take up the cross and follow Jesus, Jesus was literally nailed to a cross for being pure, then how, how is this any different? How is it not Job being tested by God? Speaking of Job,
0: can you tell me, Where you were, what was happening... This is one of the aspects of Garrett's story that I find most moving. Um, Um, He says things started to come to a head with that particular story from the Old Testament. I actually remember
2: really vividly we had this quiet time from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., I believe, where we were asked to study the Bible and reflect before our sessions.
0: He says he and the 10 or so other students were sitting in a small room on threadbare couches, the 12 recovery steps hanging on the walls all around them. I remember opening
2: up the Bible, just randomly searching for something, and I came across Job again. It's a story he'd
0: read many times during Bible studies with his dad. I'd always liked the story and found it unusual. Because the story basically begins with God and the devil placing a bet. It's, it's
2: a great setup for a story, right? And um, I remember I started reading and I became so engrossed in it. It was like I was reading it for the first time.
1: It's interesting you should ask about Job. I have just come within the past three weeks from an in-depth Bible study on Job. That is wonderful.
0: <laughs> this is Sister Carol Perry.
1: Roman Catholic sister of the Society of St. Ursula of Tours.
0: Shima uh, got her into the studio to walk us through the story of Job.
1: Job is just the, I think it's the perennial story of the human being who wonders why he is suffering. But Job is a man who seems to have everything when the story begins.
2: Well-respected guy, very devout. He has a family, of have kids. Yeah, there? he has a wife and I a- don't know how many kids but I'm gonna say three but maybe two final answer four it's a big family and lots of livestock Job was like very wealthy for his time so anyway
1: we are brought to the heavenly court where God has a member of that court who is known as ha Satan in Hebrew and that's very badly translated into English as Satan The word satan in Hebrew means an adversary. And so there was an adversary in the court of heaven. And this day, as Job begins, God is bragging about Job, who is his servant who is so good.
0: He's like, man, this guy Job, he's
2: just the best. So faithful. You know, the devil was basically like, yeah, he's good right now because he has all this stuff. But you take it away. And what do you have?
1: And the adversary says to God, let me touch what he owns and he won't be so good. And God says, all right. Try. And so he does. He destroys all of Job's property and his children.
0: Satan sends marauders to kill the kids. The property is burned. Job basically loses everything. But even so... Job still remains
1: faithful. He said God has given, God has taken away so be it. So the adversary comes back and he says, but let me touch his person and he won't be so good. And God says, do it. And so he does.
0: This time Satan sends down disease.
1: And so Job has these sores that cover him from head to foot and his friends turn against him.
2: His old quote-unquote friends... They start saying, dude, this has got to be your fault. You've done something to anger God. What did you do?
1: Most of the book of Job is a series of dialogues in which Job never turns on God. He curses the day he was born. He doesn't know what he's doing in this world. And why is this happening to me? And he wishes that God would face him so that he could ask God. And after 37 chapters of these lamentations... God appears.
0: And Job finally gets to ask God the same question that Garret found himself asking God, sitting at Love in Action. Why are you doing this to me? Mm-hmm.
2: Like, reveal the plan. Show me that it's a joke. Like, just take me out of here. Like, give me back my family. Give me back what I love. Why are you taking it from me? In the biblical story...
1: We have these two magnificent chapters of Hebrew poetry.
0: It begins with God essentially grabbing Job and pulling him up into the cosmos, high above the earth, where he starts telling him the story of the universe.
1: In which God goes through creation, starting with the sun, the moon, the stars, the snows, and says, you know, Job, when I was making these, where were you? And then God goes through all the animal kingdoms, And he said, you know, you don't even know how these animals live. When he gets all finished, Job is stunned by the fact that there is this God who is so beyond anything his little mind can put together that why should he possibly be questioning that God?
0: Similarly, Garrett says he was sitting in that seat
2: thinking, who am I to question? Like, I know it's bad. I know I just lost my family. Everything's being taken from me. But I know God is doing this for a reason. Oh, I just have to be like Job. Like
0: At the same time, he says he would think, but wait a second,
2: I've been a good son. I haven't done anything wrong. He says he would go back and forth and back and forth on this. Are you going, girl? I was battling with God at that point. Here
0: it says the battle really shifted during one particular group therapy session where there were about 15 people in the room, and it was his turn to do what's called the empty chair exercise. This is a technique that is maybe borrowed from some kind of psychotherapy, I'm not sure, but the idea is you sit across from an empty chair, you imagine a loved one in
2: that chair, and then you talk to that imaginary family member. At this point, I was sitting across from an empty chair and being told to, like, imagine my father there and you see this moment in the film
3: here he is Derek your father is sitting here and I want to I want you to tell him how affected you are by him and how angry you are
2: and they were like you need to yell you need to say this
3: tell him how you hate him for the things that he's the way he you sit down sit down but I'm
2: not angry and I was just like I can't just sit Sit down. I'm not a dog. And I, I don't think it's... anyone is responsible for me, so I don't see how it's going to help picking someone to blame or hate.
0: Garrett says that as the instructor, played by Joel Edgerton, who modeled the character after a guy named John Smith, who we'll hear more from later in the series, as the instructor was telling him to yell at his imaginary father in the chair,
2: all he could think about were good memories. So many great memories with my dad. Like, I could remember... I remember sitting in therapy and being like, I remember that time I was like at Disney World with my dad and he like put me on his shoulders and then we like walked around and like looked at Mickey Mouse. I mean, it was like beautiful stuff. It felt like they were trying to get me to like turn all of that into ugliness. If you don't hate anyone, Jared, then where is all this anger coming because from?
3: Because you're making me angry. There you go. I want you to use that. I'm not going to pretend I
0: hate my father. I don't hate my father. Jared, you do. You don't know me.
3: You're all crazy. Hey, all of you. I didn't, just Jared.
0: At this point, Garrett gets up,
2: runs out. You're in my chair. There you go, Jared. I hate you. And I was just like, I've got to get Jared, the fuck out of here. You. But
1: how does that help? Jared. <clears> At
2: <throat> this point, he
0: hightails it across the parking lot towards the main building. Jared. And they're like you
2: following me. <sighs> I go to the, the main reception area and I'm like... Hey, hey. Pushes his way past the staff member. Right, I want my things and I'm to go. Give me my stuff back. Hey. Eventually, he
0: manages to grab his phone and lock himself Jerry. in a room.
2: Jared? Hey, I just need a minute. Just go away. Take a minute, okay? And
0: then he dials his mom.
2: Jared? <laughs> mom, mom I, need you to, I need you to come get me. please. The matter?
1: Please, can- I'm in trouble.
0: Eventually, can- his mom, played by Nicole Kidman, comes screeching into the parking lot. Garrett ends up running out. Jumping into his mom's car. And he happened at that moment to be holding the giant rule book, the Welcome Garrett book. Not sure why he had it with him, but it came with him. And one person we talked to at the Mattachine Society called that book the Ur-Text of the new movement to end conversion therapy, which I took to mean it was one of the first times that the outside world really got what was happening in these programs. Now, as for Garrett himself, he wouldn't just leave love in action. He would ultimately leave his faith, move to New York, fall in love with a man, and once the Supreme Court finally made it possible, he would get married. And now, when he looks back on the story of Job, he's a bit more cynical than he used to be. Why would God have ever needed to make that bet with the devil in the
2: first place? If he's God, he doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to do all this to prove that Job is still a good person. He knows that Job's a good person. He knows his heart. So why do it? Just to prove to somebody you don't even trust or like that you're right? But when we spoke to Sister Carol Perry,
0: she put a different spin on the story. She said that the story of Job, which, yes, can be seen as a story of suffering, can also be seen as a story about humility.
1: You know, we have these little minds, no matter how bright we think we are, in comparison to what we don't know. We little human beings, who are we before the might of God?
0: She says we humans are like little tiny ants shaking our antenna up against something so much bigger than us. We don't know a thing about God's plan. And she advises all Christians, all Christians, to keep that in mind.
1: I think the gay community is here to tell us something. That God has ideas that we wouldn't have dreamt of. And that I nor you is necessarily the model for everything that is. Look at the variety in creation.
0: The Unerased team is Kat Aaron, Shima Oliayi, David Craig, Garrett Conley, and Alice Quinlan. Our executive producer is Michael L. Sesser. We had production help from Liza Yeager. Thank you to Franklin Robinson and Vaselka Hilbig and the team at the Archive Center at the Smithsonian. And a very special thanks to Charles Francis and Pate Feltz at the Madison Society of DC and Lisa Linsky at McDermott, Will & Emery for so much research help. Also, very special thanks to Carrie Roberts and everybody at Anonymous Content, without whom Unerased would not have been possible. Unerased is produced by Focus Features, Stitcher, and Limina House in association with the Focus film Boy Erased. I'm Jad Abumrad.